This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name's Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing today? I'm great, Max. How are you? I'm great. I'm excited for another fun day of podcasts. So who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, we've got Ben Schrauen. Uh, and ben is the uh, CEO and co-founder of Octon. Uh, which is uh, a part of uh, which is acquired by 3D Systems, and uh, before that, he was the he led uh, or the product development at the Spark 3D printing platform. Uh, I remember that was the thing with all the the free uh, projects that, that, that like Tinkercad they bought, they did one oh, in 3D, yeah. that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, and way way before that, he uh, did a well, which looks like a rather timely uh, computer science degree and a PhD in machine learning. So I don't <laughs> think it's going to be without a job for any time ever. No, ever, ever again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, welcome, if if indeed he wants to work. Uh, so Ben, welcome for, to- for the chat GPTs. <laughs> Hi, great to be on. So uh, so Ben, how did you? Well, you first you started on the software side, right? And then so how did you first come into contact with three D printing? I probably really started. Um, like leveraging 3D printers when I was at university. Like when I was uh, in, my, in my research group, we did quite some work on robotics. Uh, and that's where we started doing, uh, like we had a, a, a milling machine in the university, which we used often, but then very early on, we saw the advantage of being able to print prototypes, especially in robotics. You often have small, highly complex geometries, like very small volume production and so 3d printing there already was early on a user of that and then yeah became a bit of a hobby 3d printer user as well once uh, um, a lot of the open source printers came out build build a couple of those got a lot of my friends also into 3d printing so been a user and a and a home enthusiast for uh, for many years and when did you start working with them professionally did you move into it gradually or did you just end up at autodesk or how did that happen I have, like one of the startups I was involved in at university was acquired by Autodesk. I was able to move to the Bay Area. Um, like after the, the first year, very much still integrating that company into the rest of the Autodesk portfolio. But then I, I took on the challenge of really building out an additive strategy for Autodesk, um, which included acquisition of NetFab within Pan Computing, like merging them all into like one application and there was like an education strategy to it as well with, with Tinkercad. There was uh, the Spark platform to really enable uh, connectivity between machines. So yeah, that's when, that's really when I started professionally in earnest uh, really. And, and since then I've been in additive uh, like the whole time. So. And before that you were actually like, you were a professor in uh, at Ghent University in, uh, in machine learning, right? Yeah, correct. And so why did you decide to leave that and go back and work uh, in, in, because that seems like a a sweet gig, I'll say. Were were you you tenured? That's that's the real question. (laughs) (laughs) Were you a tenured professor or were you? uh... Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was, uh, I I had a research lab and like like some, some amazing students in my, in my group that now, that now are at DeepMind and Facebook and and stuff like that, doing amazing stuff. Like being in, being in academia, 
is quite repetitive. It's like every year is very similar, like similar cycle you go through. And actually one of the, 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 the things I found worst at, at university is like you're really the last man standing. Like you're able to work with amazing people but after four or five years, when they finish their PhD and maybe after a year of postdoc, you really have to let them go. Like you, you can't build long-term relationships with people. Um, and I really, yeah, I, I really didn't like that. So uh, that's why. And, and yeah, I was, during my university career, I actually started started and sold two companies. So I always was a bit entrepreneurial and a professor at the same time. And so I decided to take the plunge and... Um, and really get in, get into industry and, and give up my professor position. You know, machine learning is conquering the world. So we need to ask, uh, what's machine learning? <laughs> so machine learning is is a bit overhyped, um, as you might guess. We're um, not familiar with such concepts as overhyping <laughs> technology within the additive manufacturing yeah. space. But so it all <laughs> uh, like so machine learning really goes back to like the like the sixties. Like there, there's a lot of like it's really statistics on steroids. Uh, so you you take models which are often like like mathematical functions that you then try to fit on data. And so like a lot of people know about linear regression. So like a linear function, you fit through a number of data points, which is kind of like what you have in Excel. <laughs> but people are are uh, like uh, quite used to. Uh, to utilizing this is machine learning. That's kind of like the, the the basics of machine learning is fitting a linear function to a number of data points in Excel. Put that on steroids instead of having two variables. Give this thing like two hundred billion parameters. Um, make the function slightly more rich than what you can do with a linear function. And then, of course, you need the compute power to actually find the the solution for the knobs like how do you need to turn the 200 billion knobs so that your function actually approximates your data that is really the trick that's what computer scientists were able to to achieve the last the last couple of decades they found efficient ways that are actually leveraging like uh, gpu architectures so gpus which were orig originally built for graphics rendering were discovered to actually also be very capable architectures to efficiently optimize very large mathematical functions that can do very interesting things. Um, but the trick really is you take this function, which could do anything, and then you build a data set that typically is a labeled data set. For example, you, you could have spoken language, and then you annotate like where in this like um where in the audio are which words uttered you create a very large data set often this is like thousands and thousands or millions of examples give those examples to the algorithm that then tunes the knobs for your function to then approximate the data in the best possible way and what's been shown is that if your data sets are large enough these techniques are able to what's called generalize. You, they actually learn generalities in the data that you can then apply to data you haven't seen in your training set. And that's the magic. That's where you can train on certain data and then it learns structure in that data that you can then apply to unseen data points in the future and actually give good predictions. Um, that's really the, uh, the basics of machine learning. And what 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 is an example of something you think that machine learning is very good at? And what is like an example where you're thinking that maybe it's not as good at at the moment, let's say? 
But so uh, what we've seen the last, especially the last five years, is that um, if if the models get large enough and if the data sets get big enough, there like we haven't really found a limit to what can be learned by what's called like these deep neural networks, which is kind of like a, a class of uh, a class of these machine learning models. But they're especially good at 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 looking for ill-defined patterns in data. Like for example, speech recognition, image recognition, understanding of context in written language, for example, with, with chat GPT, like wh- wherever things are like vaguely defined, that's where we've, we've learned that these deep learning models are very good at recognizing these structures. If you want to build a self-driving car, if you want to like recognize speech, if you want to uh, um, like build the best chat bots, if you want to generate audio, that's where these deep learning models are very, very good because it's these are domains that are are quite like noisy and not precisely defined, and that's where that's really where they shine. Look, one downside. This is, with this these is models, better than like a Markov chain or something of that nature, or or a, a lexical analyzer. At the end of the day, these are much more yes. deep, or are they just those on steroids. So the thing specific, yeah. So like here. Here, here we get nerdy quickly, but so Markov chains, like hidden Markov models and Markov chains were used historically for speech recognition. But the underlying issue with Markov chains is that they basically have a very limited like uh, look back. So they assume right. that the next state only determines, only depends on the previous state, where in language, no, no, like there's like very long-term dependencies. Like the next word I'm going to utter depends on basically how we started the conversation. And this is what hidden, hidden Markov models and, and Markov chains really cannot capture, just mathematically cannot capture. And that's something that these deep neural networks actually learned something like a Markov chain internally, but that, that also allows much larger dependencies as well. So like it implicitly forms these structures without you having to explicitly model them. But so a- areas where, um, for, for example, and, and you see it with, with with chat GPT, like chat GPT is all the rage. Everyone has played with it <laughs> by, by now. Like a big issue is that it makes predictions and you don't exactly know why. Like it's, it tells you things and you, you don't know like where, like where did the, the training, like where did the evidence come from? <laughs> like from what did it learn? How did it extrapolate from its training set to the thing it's uttering now? So it's often difficult to explain how a decision was or or how a prediction was made. Um, so explainability is an issue. And, and, and they issue. lie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and that's, in, that's interesting with chat GPT. Like it doesn't know the difference between a truth and a lie because chat GPT, like it doesn't reason. Like it literally just, it's a, it's a continuous stream of language. Like it just... Like, uh, sorry to use the word, but like it barfs out text the whole time. Like it doesn't, and it doesn't reason back. It just is trained to continuously generate sensibly sounding text. (laughs) That's 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 coherent. Yeah, no, that's a good. I like that. That's sensibly sounding text is a good way of putting what it it does. (laughs) Good. Yeah. Okay. So sorry. So what's the advantages disadvantages? Yeah. Yeah. On the disadvantages, like I was, expl- I was saying, yeah, it's very difficult to 
to uh, like when it makes predictions to explain where these predictions come from and also in domains where precision is required it's often difficult um let's say uh, something in the 3d printing space for example having machine learning models do something with cat geometry is difficult because cat geometry is very precisely defined yeah, yeah. precision of the like numbers matter and that's something that machine learning models often have a hard time with and that's what you see with for example dali like this like these dali 2 models like if you look from afar oh they look sensible but when you zoom in you will see that they're full of things that don't make sense at all like they have mm-hmm. people have like six fingers and like the faces mm-hmm. are weird yeah. like so from afar it looks okay but then if you zoom in and look at stuff precisely like getting that precision right is really difficult yeah, I like the example of the geometry because we don't, well, we always struggle and say that the files are very imprecise and the geometry is actually really imprecise, right? So we're always thinking of this way. But in the in the grand scheme of things, we actually need it to be precise and is quite precise because the, the obvious thing people are thinking about is to use these kind of models for, well, file resurfacing, let's say, or uh, just, just the geometric kind of like simplification of CAD, like really intelligent CAD, if you will. But you're saying that's specifically going to be diff- going to be difficult, or are there ways around that? Or uh, there are ways around it, but it is difficult. <laughs> it's for example, it's much easier to do things like if you're if we're talking about geometry, do things with point clouds, do things with meshes that are like where where, where imprecision is is not punished <laughs> like globally. Like in a, in a cat model, like it's a design tree. So like the smallest error at the root node, like you'll you'll pay for it in the rest of the design tree, which is not the case with a mesh. Like if one voxel, like if, if one vertex is slightly off, like it doesn't mess up your whole model. And, th- and that's kind of like the, the stuff I'm trying to describe, like where, and like, like at Octon, for example, we use a lot of deep learning models to work on geometry. It's much easier to get them to work well based on meshes, voxels, point clouds, than it is to get them to work on CAT. We're investing heavily to get them to work on CAD because that's where a lot of value lies. Um, but that's something where it's it's more difficult to, to get that precision right in like with these machine learning models. Sorry, but can these machine learning models at, at this point, like can I can I have it solve like a problem? Like let's say I have a bunch of pellets that I want to load into um, an injection molding machine and I want to design a new way of doing it so I don't need an agitator. Can I ask these systems if I define, you know, you have to fit within this space. Now go ahead and generate 5,000 different random things, see what makes one works and then show me the one that actually works the best and it's a new geometry whereas that that's totally out of its capabilities right now so the machine learning i described up until now is you give it a bunch of data it learns structure in the data and then it can make new predictions for data it hasn't seen before so the example you gave doesn't fall in that class got it but there are um if for example you look at so uh, DeepMind has done work on alphago this was also in the media where it like built like this this model that's the best go player in the world um this was really based on an idea where it's an algorithm built on top of machine learning that will basically search for solutions so you don't need to give it training data it will build its own training data by searching in the space and then finding regularities um and so these types of algorithms that can solve these optimization problems, they could, for example, be used in that example that you gave. 
Um, but then, of course, there is a whole different class of algorithms that's not machine learning, but more optimization-based. Um, like, for example, topology optimization, where you can very clearly specify, ah, here's my bounding volume. Like, these are my load conditions. This is the, the function I want this, uh, th this object to, uh, to fulfill. And there you can analytically run an optimization algorithm that then finds the geometrical solution with the least amount of material that solves your problem. A lot of people start calling this AI as well. It's definitely not machine learning. You could call it AI, like if if all of optimization is AI, um, but that's that that's a bit of a stretch. Th those are the, the the different options. You can search. <laughs> so just a, just a, like uh, yeah, there's another term you used, and it was like deep learning, right? Uh, so how do I do differentiate between the two? Because a lot of people use this interchange. I mean, it's driving me absolutely crazy, right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if you go back to the, the, the history of statistics, so I, I was explaining, ah, there is these simple models like linear regression. Um, so one of the simple models that were introduced in the 60s was called the perceptron, which was inspired by the limited knowledge people had in the 60s of how the brain worked. And they called, ah, here is what we call a neuron, and it has a number of inputs. And you take those inputs, you add them up with a weight, and then you apply some simple nonlinear function. And we call this the perceptron. Um, and that was like the start of what's, what's now called neural networks. So neural networks are just a number of these neurons brought together in larger networks. Actually, calling them neural networks is a is a bit weird. They're just inspired by the knowledge of how the brain worked in the 60s. It really has nothing to do with how the brain works. Um, and what's what's then the deep neural network is one of the main researchers actually in the, in, the, in about uh, like 20, 2010, uh, Hinton came up with this idea of, ah, let's, let's not just have a few layers, but let's have many, many layers. Let's make these networks incredibly deep. Let's give them like a dozen or like, or like even down to like 50 uh, layers deep of like neurons after neurons after neurons. And they found ways in which they could efficiently train it. Like in the past, it was very difficult to train these types of networks. They found ways on how to do it. And they discovered that these are incredibly powerful, they have very powerful representation capabilities by being deep. It's better to make them deep than to make them wide. Um, it's more efficient to make them deep than to make them wide. But so it's, it's a type of neural network which is again a machine learning model that just has many layers of simple uh, neural representations, um, and that's that's called a deep learn, uh, deep neural network. And those are the ones that are really like the the workhorse for a lot of the things you see today, like ChatGPT and Dali, and like all these models. They're all based on on these uh, deep neural networks. This is also another, this is like a really weird question, I think. But So there is like this feeling of people that don't understand machine learning and AI and the whole, the whole thing that China, because it doesn't do privacy and has got a lot of video, is going to ultimately kind of win in this area, as opposed <laughs> to other countries where you have more privacy concerns and, and they have just less data. And is that a question? Because it seems quite logical, right? Oh, wait, if the, the, oh, yeah. the my my For training sure. set is bigger than your training set, then I'm going to be better at facial recognition or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Because all like the algorithms themselves are all open source. And that's amazing about the, and that's why the AI field actually has moved as fast as it moved because it decided to be fully open. Like all of the main research labs at all of the top companies, Facebook, Google, 
Microsoft, like they published all their work and always with code. Um, so it's really not about the algorithms. Everyone has the same algorithms. It's, it's about two things. How much data do you have and what's the quality of the data? And then how much compute do you have? Because for example, training, um, I think training chat GPT cost about $10 million in, in electricity bill. <laughs> so it was $10, bill, like $10 million of electricity that it costs to train that model. Like it's thousands and thousands of GPUs that have to compute for weeks on end um, to optimize all these, per, to, to, to twiddle all the knobs, to, to fine tune the model to actually perform the way it performs. And so it's, and, and that's why this whole um, like chip ban to uh, to China is like creates such a commotion for 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 the Chinese because they're they're really being cut off of of the lifeblood of being able to 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 train these models. But so yeah, like very interesting geopolitical mm-hmm. things going on yeah. around around AI. And yeah. I mean, also, I know it's not as big an issue anymore, but. You know, crypto mining, I have to imagine, was having an impact on this ability to research it on some level, too, when you can't get GPUs because everyone was trying to mine crypto. Yeah. Is it going to be a defining technology of our age or is it just something that's going to play a particular role? What's your feeling about that, about machine machine learning? It's absolutely going to be a defining technology. It's... There have been a few false starts, Um, like AI has been overhyped. Like like three or four times over. Decades, yeah. yeah for like yeah. every time they were totally overhyped, and then it crashed, and then overhyped again, and it crashed again. I think now finally they got to a point where the quality of the solutions for a broad audience are so differentiating that yes, like like we're nowhere near AGI. So this is not the uh, this is not the, co- the, the 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 cognitive agent. But the level of AI capabilities that we now are able to build reliably, so it's not only one company, but every company can do it. It will totally transform every part of our economy um, because so many aspects can be, can start being automated. And I, I think it will really lead to the next big wave of, of automation where like introdu- introduction of the PC, like in the 80s, like really transformed the way initially how first office environments were managed and then how factories were managed. I think now AI will be the second big wave of how like computers and information technology can, can get to the next level of automation because now things that only patterns that only people could see, now computers can start seeing them and can start using that to automate workflows. That's really one of the, the, the big beliefs that I had when, when I started Octon this kind of like, okay, yeah, this, like we're on the brink of AI becoming truly um, useful and not just like a toy. Yeah, it was nice that the, like Facebook like tagged your friends on images and stuff like that, but that that was more like a like more more as a gimmick than like true productivity gains for the economy. And I think now we, we got this point of true productivity gains. Like we, we built Octon from the start to be an AI company. Like we keep all the data we. We have a dedicated AI team from day one. We, we look at applying AI smartly, like in in different areas. Um, and yeah, we're, we're seeing big benefits and I expect this stuff to only accelerate. So, 
And then, yeah, because it was really interesting. Everybody was talking about replacing writers, so I'm like worried about my job, like as a, as a uh, we're writing for 3dprint.com. <laughs> and then at the same time, I'm like downloading to, to put a photo on, online. I have to download it from a website, then rename it, then upload it to another website. I'm like, well, maybe we should do that first, you know, <laughs> like automate this stupid stuff yeah, <laughs> before the, they, before they automate my whole job. <laughs> But that is harder because there you need to like you need more context. Yeah? Like you need to actually understand what's on these websites, and you need to understand like like your computer environment. And but like these things will come, like these these web assistants that can just help you do like the tedious tedious tasks. They're uh, they're currently being developed. So. Okay, okay. So tell us a little bit more about Octon. So Octon itself, you started as an AI company. And it did some really interesting things, and and uh, uh, so you know it it, it would had these automation streams in it. What other stuff does Octon do now? Let's say tell us a little bit more broadly about it. So the reason I started Octon, so like I I was at at Autodesk, like I was managing both the additive manufacturing group as well as a group responsible for sheet metal, and so in the like in the sheet metal industry, already for the last twenty years. Um, Things are incredibly automated. Like if you order a sheet metal part, like you get a quote like in five minutes. Like orders come into the she- like the sheet metal shop, and then like the the ERP will automatically generate nests, will automatically push them to the available machines. Will like all this stuff is highly highly automated. And I, I looked at it, and then and then looking at other industries like additive and and, and machining and, and and welding shops and stuff is like still super repetitive and super manual and um i saw this big opportunity of of applying the idea that already existed in the sheet metal industry and sheet metal stuff is all much simpler because it's every like everything is in the in the 2d domain materials are more like more easy um the algorithms are simpler Based on that idea, how can we bring it to to the rest of the manufacturing space? Um, and if you looked at other companies like Autodesk and Siemens, PTC, Dassault, they were all on a different path. They all started with CAD and PLM, bought a billion dollars of, of CAM companies, and then integrated manufacturing engineering closer to CAD. But this really wasn't solving the, the core problem that a lot of manufacturing companies were facing. Um, Namely, yeah, batch sizes are getting smaller. New new product introduction time is is uh, decreasing. It's actually very difficult to find skilled labor that's able to program these advanced machines, five-axis mills and metal three D printing and, and stuff like that. And that's where the whole idea from Octon for Octon came from. Like, what if we start from scratch, build a, a platform that at the core really represents the production environment? like an MES IoT platform, really intended to, to, to capture the complete digital thread of all the parts that are being produced, that then can become the data engine for like these AI automations to build on top of it. And then we attach CAM software much closer to that production reality. Um, and that's where the idea of Octon came from. Like we initially, like we, so we started about five years ago. Initial focus was on on metal and polymer 3D printing. We specifically went to the market by focusing on on precise industry verticals. And the reason for that is like, if you focus on a vertical, like for example, dental, um, like we have a great dental solution that has like the best automation in the market, but because we focus on dental, we can train an AI model. Like, no, we can train multiple machine learning models for the different 
commonly used dental indications like crowns and bridges and RPDs and, and, and dental models and clear aligners. But then that model can be rolled out to all of the company, like all of the uh, customers in that vertical, where very often if AI is applied in manufacturing, you as a manufacturing company need to go to a consultant. They will then take 12 months to build a custom AI model for you. So it's very slow, very expensive. And we, we took a different approach. We really looked at, okay, are there verticals that basically have similar type of geometries for which we can then train models that can be applied broadly throughout that vertical? And so we did that for um, dental, for healthcare, for like uh, like service bureaus, for oil and gas. Um, and so we, we really go after the market more in, like in this verticalized approach. Um, and then like after focusing on on additive we basically took that platform that we built cloud-based platform all like all these like the innovations we did in these deep learning models for geometry and then applied it to uh, different technologies so we now also have a solution for for cnc milling like initially it's rolled out in the dental markets but we intend to expand this to other verticals as well we have we have a solution for um, programming of uh, welding robots, so where you can just give us a CAD file. We use machine learning models to find like weld lines, match process parameters to it, like, completely automatically generate uh, a robot program that you can just like download, r- run on the robots. Again, like for each of these industries, it's always trying to uh, like re- remove very tedious, repetitive tasks that often only can be done by very highly highly trained engineers that rather do like more interesting things. Um, that's how Octon was set up. And then, so so typically, like, so is it the money saved that, 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 that is really, is it the productivity savings? Is that what you're going for in all cases? Are you going to just build up more and more productivity saving tools? Or are you really going to be kind of like a middleware, mid-layer for all manufacturing? So yeah, we have... So we have several large accounts that really use Octon as like the central manufacturing coordinator where orders come in, we manage the design process, we, we run 3D printing, we, we run laser marking, we run machining, like label, like, like the whole process, like it's really like the, 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 the central manufacturing operating system almost that drives the, the complete production. So those are more yeah, co- complex enterprise use cases. Um, but so for smaller SMBs, they really see Octon more as a, um, like it, 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 it gives them like ease of mind. Like for example, like some of these dental labs, they used to have one guy and that, like the one guy knew how the printer worked. And if that one guy was ill, they weren't able to run the printer because yeah, like he knew this program that was super difficult and like he had all this process knowledge. And so like the, the, these companies really had like Achilles heels, which were often people that had specific skills that nobody else could do. Um, and, and so that's something that Octon really brings. Like it allows that knowledge to be really captured by these AI models so that many more people are able to use these technologies. Um, and so it brings this, this peace of mind. Uh, and of course, yeah, we drive up efficiency. Like we were able to put more parts on the machines. We make sure they're better scheduled. We, we reduce a, 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 a bunch of the repetitive engineering labor that's needed. Um, that's all a plus, but it's this ease of mind that I feel that, that we can uniquely offer. And because and that's true these AI models where it, like instead of depending on like this one specialist 
that uniquely knew this machine, now the generalists in their organizations are able to actually use these advanced technologies, um, which I think is very powerful. But isn't that like two different challenges? Because like we're used to big like software implementations, like kind of like PLM and all this kind of stuff, being very bloated and very kind of like all encompassing, difficult, and all this difficult to implement. But like you know, we need if a dental office is going to want a software tool to make their life more efficient, they don't want to you know, train on. They don't want like a a week long class, right? They want to have somebody fire up and just works. So aren't you making two different things? Or no, it's one it's one platform, and it's. Uh... How would I compare it? Like if you think about like painful enterprise software, you would like people would think about let's say SAP. SAP is <laughs> very capable. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Very capable software, but it comes with a consulting contract. Like it needs to be conf- like it needs to be customized yeah. to your environment. And people need to be trained. Like it's it's diff- like it's it's like old school enterprise software. Um like Octon is much more like um I, I don't know if you know Asana, Asana, like this ticket ticket uh, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, tracking software. It's actually very simple to learn, easy to use, and it has layers. So like people discover more capabilities in Asana if they start using it. So it doesn't come with a manual. You just start using it. And then once you're used to the normal features, you discover more capabilities. And it's set up to be highly flexible where first time you look at it, you think, oh, this is simple. But then when you start using it more, you can start configuring it to match more the types of workflows that are specific to your organization. And Octon is very similar. So it's like it's it's configurable instead of having to be customized. You don't have to go in and write all this custom code. No, it's all like every page is 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 with widgets and you can configure everything and you can make your own work. Like, flexibly create your own workflows and it's also not additive specific so you can you can manage all of the post-processing work around it and you can use it very lightly like just very simple like order tracking or you can go very deep and track everything in your production environment all the way down to like uh like medical grade um, like we have some some customers that really got their iso 13 485 audit done as Octon with the source of record. So you can go very deep and, and, and use it in that way, but you don't have to. Um, and so that's really how we, we try to a- approach it differently. Um, yeah, I, see that's, I think that's brilliant because, well, because software is one, uh, small companies want simple things, right? I always tell like startups, like how easy is this tool to implant, implement? More importantly, how easy is it to rip out, you know? How easy can I take my data out of this thing and take it to the next thing? So they want stuff that's really flexible. And if you can grow along with the fast-growing businesses or fast-growing business units, that could be a really great growth growth strategy. Like you start with these ideas when you start a company, but then we actually see it work out. So now like we're five years in and we have like small mom and pop shop with like one printer is using Octon. And we have one, like we have some of the largest contract manufacturers in the world rolled out Octon using across multiple facilities and it's all the same software and that's quite amazing so it's like it it actually worked out but then the next step i mean okay everybody now is looking at like the data from the machines right and 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 qa data and integrating that and then people may be a bit fearful saying wait a minute Octon's part of like you know 3d systems is that going to phone home uh, is 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 information from 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 my a printer from another brand going to leak back to three systems, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and this is something that yeah, that's like a good question. Yeah, th- this is something that with the acquisition, um, 
So Octon, before the acquisition, we were always positioned like to be completely neutral. Like we worked with everyone, with like Trump, US, Broadway, Street System, like it really didn't matter. And that neutrality is something that our customers really valued because customers have heterogeneous environments. Like they don't want to buy everything from one vendor. They have multiple uh, types of equipment. And so with the acquisition, I made it very clear to, to Jeff Graves, CEO of 3D Systems, we really need to maintain that neutrality because if we lose the neutrality, we basically lose a big benefit that we're that we're offering our customers and so with that we octon is was is really set up as a as a separate uh, subsidiary like it's a separate entity with like all the software teams now moved under the octon umbrella and then we set up a, a data firewall between octon and the rest of 3d systems which really means that the several of the it systems are duplicated like we like we have our own crm like we have our own sales all like, like so like like we're really able to shield off uh, prospects and customers and accounts that are from 3d system competitors so that the rest of the 3d system printer organization doesn't have access to those to really ensure that that we can maintain maintain that neutrality Another thing which which I would I'm looking at this and I'm thinking wait well, how does this licensing model then work as a customer because it would seem to be like how do you cater to all these different use cases and all these different kind of ways of working together yeah yeah so the the pricing is actually quite simple it's a uh, so it's a subscription based model where you pay a subscription per user that you want to have log into the system and that you want to track and per machine that you're managing um, and the price per machine. The annual price per machine depends on the productivity of the machine. If it's a small machine, like a small Formlabs machine, it's a, it's a small price. If you have like a large SLA 750, like high productivity machine, you pay more. Uh, and so that makes the, 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 the pricing model completely scale nicely. Like so like a small, like a like a like a, a dental app with, with, with one metal 3D printer is paying a couple thousand dollars a year. But then if you have a large enterprise account that runs multiple facilities, like high levels of traceability, hundreds of machines connected, yeah, you're talking about um, like half a million dollars maybe like in, in, in software fee, but then like it really uh, delivers much more value also for, for these customers. And that's where yeah, we're, we're really set up to, uh, to have that highly flexible pricing model. And what do you want to then do in the future? Like, what, what kind of uh, like more, or what kind of like more value, more tools are you unlocking for customers then on the basis like this? Yeah, it seems like this operating system that's also an applications kind of approach. Yeah. Um, so one of the big things we're doing in Additive is so with the acquisition, um, we were also able to take Three D Expert. So Three D Expert actually was the was. The, um, build preparation software developed by 3D Systems that was uniquely bundled with their metal machines, with their DMP, uh, DMP line. Um, it's very capable software. It's basically, it, it's so a prior acquisition that they made was, uh, uh, was, called, was called Simatron. Simatron was, was one of the leading softwares for mold and dye design. So in injection molding, it's like, it's a real complete CAD environment. Um, it's basically like SolidWorks, but specifically for, for mold and dye, um, they they took that code base and then built a metal 3D printing solution on top of it. Um, but so it's incredibly capable, like it's built on on 20 years of experience uh, in, in mold and dye, and then built like the the best build preparation software in the planet. But it then only was available for the 3D system printers. And so one of the things we we're able to do is with Octon. Uh, 
joining is that we are able to take 3D Expert and make it available broadly to the market. Um, and so now our additive solution really has these two main components. We have Octon as a cloud solution, really all about automation, traceability, and 3D experts for like the fine control. Um, like we're like it used to like initially it was only build preparation, but then we also acquired Amphion, which is a GPU-based um, process simulation for metal additive. It's like it's very fast, which allows you to use simulation actually during the build preparation process. So it's not only for validation, but really helps you make the correct decisions on how to orient and support parts. Um, so that is fully integrated. We started adding a bunch of DFAM capabilities. So both like implicit surface-based design, mesh-based design, but it completely blends with the core CAT kernel that's there as well. So you can you can blend between like an implicitly defined uh, like space filling curve to then like uh, CAD geometry that 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 connects your piping, um, and so we're really building out this complete end-to-end -end, um, desktop tool that allows you to, uh, to to do these more, and that's why it's called three D experts. Really, more of these ex expert workflows, um, but three D expert is completely connected to the cloud solution as well. Um, so we maintain, you, you, you don't have to be messing with files and for, folders. It's really just like, it's almost like a PLM. Like it manages complete revisions and versions. And, and so, yeah, like both of these solutions coming together, I'm very excited about. Um, and then the, the last component, so the, the, the third pillar, which is something that we're investing very heavily in now, is quality. Like if you look at the, the arc of, of 3D printing, initially it was, okay, yeah, we need to get the thing Print it so like the it needs to come out, and then the second big thing was okay. Yeah, now we need to do it cost effectively, and the third big thing now will be quality. Okay, is it actually within the quality specifications of of the customer? And so quality is, is a big area of investment for us, where yeah we're we're, in, we're investing in, in multiple areas, both monitoring processes on the printers themselves using the, the sensor data through IoT, using camera images that we also applied learned models on but we also have uh like true like uh like yeah, geometrical accuracies and then of course all of the all of the uh quality related aspects test specimens material qualification like all, all of these things will be you'll be able to track them in the in that same environment and then really start doing things like like a root cause analysis okay if you if you start seeing failures um, like you're doing serial production of, of metal parts, for example, and and there's uh, you 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 start to see yield issues. And then you can really then start analyzing. Okay, what is the root cause? Where like where like where do these things like come from? Is it an operator issue? Is it the machine calibration issue? Is it the is it the build preparation issue? And so th those are questions that are very difficult to answer today because all this data lives in Excel sheets and. And files on PC somewhere, um, but through like this quality solution that we're building now, you'll really be able to like like hone in and 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 uh, make 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 additive reliable, which I think is the next big like will will be the the next big frontier for additive, like to to get it to a point where it, like reliably can build parts cost effectively within the quality requirements, um, and and doing that type of um, broader analysis uh, of data aggregated from multiple uh, multiple sources. Really look at it um, w w with the lens of what happened in production. 
allows us to uh, to to draw these kind of conclusions. Okay, Ben, that's that's really mm. very very interesting. Thank you so much for your time, Ted. It's really really fascinating uh, uh, to learn about well, machine learning generally and what you guys are doing at Octon. Great, thanks uh, thanks for having me. And uh, Max, thank you for being here as well. No, oh, always a pleasure. Perfect timing. <laughs> and uh, thank you for listening. Uh, this is another episode of the 3D Pod, and uh, have a wonderful day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.